Welcome everyone to the panel discussion of the ancient geeks. Um, uh, as you can see, we have a, once again a great group of panelists, um, all of whom I don't need to introduce, but I will anyway. Um, Miller Puckett, Larry Polanski, Brad Garten, and Perry Cook. I think we're going to have a great discussion today. Um, as far as the topic, um, I think I'm just going to go ahead and start with Miller and go down to Perry and give them a few minutes to talk about um, some of the things that they have in mind for us today. So go ahead, Miller. All right. Well, that, um, so the, uh, I didn't say this. <laughs> I didn't see what the uh, aliens presented yesterday, and I have a feeling from reading what's going on that what I'm going to say is largely going to repeat what they said because, what, uh, because the, the ideas that are going around um, in the whole um, out-of-control uh, software and out-of-control music movement, if I can call it that, um, has a surprising convergence of, of thoughts and practices right now, um, which is partly made possible by the fact that we're in such close contact, really, um, which is something that hasn't been true in the, in the past. Uh, we live in a time, that, and again, I'm going to just apologize for saying things that are of such obviousness that uh, all of you have thought these thoughts every morning as you brush your teeth, um, that the, um, the support under which the information that we thrive on has gotten so much cheaper that, um, the in that essentially the model by which we try to make it possible for people to communicate has uh, changed entirely. And the old ways of, of uh, trying to encourage flows of information by for instance, uh, making large numbers of copies of things and then financing it by selling the physical um, what call artifacts like Bibles, you know, things like that. Um, that's gone. Um, and it was effectively gone maybe five years ago in, in the field of music and it's quickly becoming gone in, in every other uh, field of endeavor that requires any kind of transfer of information. Um, and that's not a, a modest statement about a little part of our economy because, of course, everything that we are is really a transmittal of information, you know. We're really just, according to one view, the carriers of our DNA. And that's really the payload and we're just the, uh, the artifact, <laughs> which, um, which is becoming uh, cheaper and cheaper, uh, whereas the uh, payload uh, is becoming more and more the focus of, of what our culture really is trying to, um, is, is, is well, our culture isn't trying to do anything because culture doesn't have volition. But um, what we believe our culture is, is, is really about and really accomplishes for us, if our culture accomplishes something for us and if it is not really, really that we are trying to accomplish something for our culture, which might uh, outlast us if we are lucky, uh, if our culture is lucky. And now the issue is this thing, this sort of cloud that... Um, that surrounds us, which is called our culture, uh, just like the culture that surrounded the ancient Greeks for which we celebrate them. We don't celebrate their military victories or their, uh, the kind of automobiles they uh, rode in. They, we, we celebrate what they left us, uh, perhaps because it's all that we got left of them and, and perhaps also because that was what was truly important. That's what we believe is true. And the funny thing about right now is that that thing, which is what is important, has suddenly also become the thing which is, uh, in monetary terms, scot-free. Uh, no, that's a 
that's the other sense of free. Um, free. <laughs> it's a free ride right now. And the only people that haven't caught on are the ones who are still trying to make money at it. Um, unfortunately, most people believe that, uh, that they, well, most people are right in believing that they have to make money in order to survive. And there's been this nice model in the West, in other parts of the world too, whereby uh, the village artist is supported by the, the, uh, the rest of the village, be it a little or a big village. And the reason that everyone else supports the artist is to free their time up so that they can try to, to focus on being a repository of the culture. Um, this is something that we value in the West as well, and it's why we do things like have universities or uh, pay people to compose music. And um, so the fact that the model is now no longer working in Gutenberg's way, in other words, we can no longer support the uh, cultural activities that we are engaged in by selling pieces of paper, which we pretend are actually the thing of value uh, by asking for money for them. Uh, and the fact that we now have to go back to the idea that the thing that is of value really is only what is the vibrations that are moving in the air right now in this room, say, and whatever other vibrations might move, have moved before now to make it possible to make these ones and what, whichever ones might move later, that that's really what's happening and that that's really the thing that um, on a completely different sphere from our stupid, mundane, normal existences is really what is supposed to be carrying us forward or what our purpose is to try to carry forward. Um, I think that we live in a time right now when we can suddenly think about that bare fact in, in its own raw power um, in a way that we haven't been able to since, uh, since the printing press was invented, which just got made obsolete, thank God. <laughs> And uh, that's all I'm going to say right now. Thanks. <laughs> Is this me? <laughs> oh, <good. clears throat> oh, I'm sorry. I haven't been checking whether you could hear me or anything like that. I think I won't even try to respond to Miller in any way. Uh, because, but uh, let me just take a completely different tack uh, on the notion of this: these four people sitting in front of a room. Uh, when I think it was I'm the one who suggested the title, and um, I did it because I've been on for about uh, three or four years. There's been about six people, uh, friends of mine, who have a kind of an informal email group. Uh, I won't tell you who they are, but I'm sure we all have these people, and they're the people you send the weird idea you just heard about that you know only these six people will not tell you to stop emailing them about that idea. Uh, things like Zip's Law or something, you know, you just heard something really weird and you know these six people will kind of appreciate it and there'll be feedback and uh, maybe somebody will do a piece or something like that. Um, and it, a while ago, one of the people on the group, um, whose name I will mention because I stole his, he, he said, you know, this is the ancient geeks. These are the people who've been doing this for 20, 30 years, having these kinds of discussions and, and <laughs> kind of surfing, not in terms of the net, but surfing over all the tidal waves of new technologies and new languages and things like that, who've kept talking about interesting ideas. And that seemed like a kind of a nice notion. But also, it, it occurred to me that all the people on that list, uh, oh, the guy's name was Robert Marsagni, I'm sorry, who's a programmer and uh, computer musician. Um, 
But when I looked at the panel, I realized that we have people who've been in this, whatever this field is, or whatever it is we do, we've been doing it for a very long time, and we've done it in very, very different ways, and those ways have been very, very different in the way they've interacted with what we produce, how we live. I mean, we have composers slash programmers, we have language developers, we have uh, uh, programmers slash composers, we have researchers, and we, we all do some of all of that, but in very different sort of balances. And I know in my, I, I want to just be very personal, I, I'm not speaking for the other people, but in my life, uh, it's been a kind of a big challenge to juggle uh, all the things I want to do and I'm interested in. And the diff most difficult thing to juggle has been uh, retooling at various points. You know, I wrote a language in 1980 that I used for 12 years, and then I, I declared it dead, and then I was without I was like someone whose natural language was taken away from them. And it took me a couple of years to learn a new language. And uh, that's a very difficult thing to do the older you get. Uh, but it, I think it's a very important thing to do. And it's a very revelatory thing to do and a very beautiful experience. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of not say something, not make a statement so much now, but to ask the question. And I ask it not so much to us, but to the younger people here of uh, how how do you deal with this kind of thing as life gets more full, as, uh, as my friend Bill Matthews says this morning, as output starts to uh, overbalance input, that is, you're writing pieces, you're teaching classes, you're taking care of kids, whatever. It's not the time when you sit down and start learning computer languages. You, you don't have that kind of dedicated, in, insanely geeky, long sessions. But you've got to find them, and you've got to do it, because otherwise you're, what you do, the thing that you consider beautiful and interesting, becomes very difficult. So I, I kind of posed it as a, a very personal sort of question. And how do you make the kinds of choices that you need to make? I, I'm not going to learn seven new languages uh, this week, but I'm going to learn what You know, I'm going to keep growing. <coughs> how do you make those kinds of choices? And I think uh, I'm not suggesting there is a way to make that decision, but it has very... It has a lot to do with identifying who you are, what kind of artist you are, what your personality is, and sort of coming to peace with that, and um, and, and finding that place where you can sort of inhabit, but not get self-satisfied, not stop growing. Uh, and that seems to be a very important question for every generation in this room, uh, even though I think at the age of 22, if someone had told me that, I said, man, I'll just learn them all, you know. But, uh, but that... That's not going to work. You know, you have to kind of find a way to, one, not get crusty, not get close-minded, but also find that place that you can really keep growing and, and be ready to reinvent at any point. Um, <clears throat> yeah, ancient. I meant you. <laughs> my, my back is really hurting this morning. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it's funny because when this panel title, Ancient Geeks, was proposed, I think Perry wrote back with one of his pithy comments mm -hmm. and said, do we get to use the stochastic method? <laughs> so, sorry. <laughs> I know it's too early in the morning. <laughs> um, I'm going to drop the R and talk, you know, we're, this is definitely going to be a stochastic kind of panel because, you know, Miller started out and I thought, oh, my God, such a high level. Um, I can't compete. <laughs> 
But um, I, I think the, the benefit of going a little bit later in the pecking order here is I, I've been able to scribble a few things down. And I want to respond directly to something that Larry just talked about and obliquely to kind of uh, the territory that Miller laid out. And it has to do with kind of the, the locus of what's interesting to me as an ancient geek. Um, and it revolves around, I, I hesitate to say, issues of control. You know, Miller was talking about out of control and, you know, what happens to our artifacts when we put them out there. Um, and it also, you know, Larry was talking about juggling things. Well, I dropped the ball about five years ago and never recovered any of them. And I find myself in a position where, for my own work, I'm, I'm essentially speaking ancient Greek. I'm using a dead language. You know, I've, my programming is happening in something that virtually nobody else in the world is, is using. Um, I fooled around with Max MSP and uh, Jason and Super Collider. Uh, <laughs> um, and it occurs to me the kick isn't so much in the particular tools that, that I'm using at any given time, but in the process that I'm engaging as I use those tools. You know, what, what is the tool doing to me? And maybe that's why I go back to this ancient language that I get a kick out of using. Um, and I have, a, I have a little story to talk about this because it also hits some issues that I heard on the very first panel discussion that I had to walk out on. Um, not because I was angry or anything. I, I had to leave. I'm sorry. It is early in the morning. Um, we had a guy just a few weeks ago gave a talk at Columbia uh, named Amit Pitaru, and he's involved in developing this language called Processing. Some of you may have heard of this. It's a graphics programming language. It's spelled P-R-O-C-5-5-C-E-5-5-I-N-G. It's really clever that way. Um, but he gave a really wonderful and sort of uh, exemplary uh, discussion of how this language is important for artists. It's, it's kind of a Java-based language, and you can very quickly control large groups of kind of agents that draw things and do very elegant work. But he really couched that the, the talk was given to a group of artists and composers in a class we offer called Sound Image. And the talk was really sort of contextualized by him saying, this isn't hard. This is a tool that artists can use. You don't have to think about programming. This isn't hard, you know. And this is why artists can now pick this up and use this. And, and it's so much fun. And, you know, first of all, that was kind of wrong because you actually do have to program to use the language a little bit. But he was trying to sort of sugarcoat the whole thing. But it occurred to me that something, I, I was really ambivalent about that notion. First of all, I like the idea that an artist can, in fact, pick up something like this and start making art like it. You know, that's really, really cool um, for people who have sort of creative ideas in our culture. But the thing that made me sad is this process of engagement with a tool. This is what digital stuff has offered us in the past, you know, several decades at least, the ability to take this tool and say, I don't like it like this. I really want it like this, you know, and redesign the entire thing. You know, that's the kind of the locus of creativity and invention that some of these languages that pretend to sort of do it all for you kind of overlook. Um, and I guess that, you know, Miller talking about how it sort of fits into society, the way I see this fitting in society is that it's not important even what we do, but how we do it. And this notion, you know, getting back to that earlier panel discussion, the idea of, of the frontier or the, the locus of invention, you know, this is why I'm really intrigued by people that are designing weird interfaces and, you know, taking cows and, you know, squeezing them and making them go, wah. Um, that creativity, that, that invention, that approach to just 
living your life is something that I find intensely fascinating and intensely engaging. And to the extent that our tools begin to lose that ability to engage on that level, I think our society and our culture is lessened a little bit. So that's my ancient sort of take on this whole thing. But. <laughs> okay, as the, as the lowest peck in the pecking order. Peck. <laughs> <laughs> Um, gosh, yeah, everybody says everything, and now I get to wrap it up. Um, let's see, I've been thinking about a few things as we moved towards this panel. A lot of email went around, and we kept editing and putting more things in. The pipes are and calling <laughs> and, um, um And then uh, these guys have inspired a couple more notes here. Um, most of my life has been... Well, just really been hacking to have fun. Uh, Brad's a model, but most of us are like this. It's like, you know, get up and write some code to clear your thoughts and generate many bugs and, and be amused by them and, and move from that point forward. Um, and so in, in <clears throat> to make that kind of study serious, then you, you know, found a way to frame it and, and uh, give language around it. And, uh, and you solve some problems on the way, which is cool. So you publish some papers about that. And, um, but um, much, much of my work has, has had to do with porting. Uh, as Larry said, you know, it's migrating stuff. Uh, and it's been porting for money. Uh, this company wants this algorithm to run on this DSP chip. So that's kind of cool. It has a nice boundary to it. Um, but also porting to document. Um, so in a way, I would say that, that um, one of the interesting things that I think I've, I've really been working on a lot in the last 10 years, and I really started actively about seven years ago or eight uh, when I decided to come to Princeton, uh, I was leaving Stanford, Karma, which is this lab that has this great legacy, and, uh, and, an, and an odd legacy, too, because they had this accident of this patent that, was FM, which funded everything from, you know, that moment forward until uh, about 1995 when the patent expired. And so um, the whole lab had this interesting, every lab has a different color. You know, you go to IRCOM, it's got a vibe for per decade, sort of, I guess. And, uh, and those, that shifts. And um, But anyway, the, the mood at Karma was really very much about um, developing algorithms, publishing them, uh, but also trying to patent them and sell them. And so... Um, one of the uh, things that I really decided to do when I left Karma and came to Princeton was to actively not do that ever again. Um, and so every shred of anything I've created since then has been immediately posted, emailed, uh, published, and given away. And that included going back through 10, 15 years of legacy code of different algorithms that I'd written porting those all to one place and giving that away as well. And a lot of those are still have patents on them, but those are starting to expire. So um, this sort of fits in with the original, Miller's original ideas. We've, you know, we're now in a world where we can do this, and people will actually you know, download this stuff, try it, port it themselves, uh, and, and it just completely immediately gets out of our control, which is great, uh, which I like. The other side of what I do has to do with building physical objects, though. And so when I decide to put sensors on this water bottle and put a you know, resistive strip on Brad's head and spray this water at him and use it to control something, um, that's something that is harder to give away. It's harder to uh, duplicate 
one billion of <coughs> place on a web server and have people download. And so uh, there's this interesting new area. I mean, and all of us have built weird controllers of some flavor uh, over the years, but it's very easy to do. And there's a whole community now um, of, and it's really becoming a community. It's actually even becoming a curriculum. So, so far, nobody's mentioned anything about teaching, which is interesting. Yeah. So we'll, we, we'll, we'll take another pass through that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there are schools now with curricula about building controllers for expressive art, interactive art, things <coughs> like that. And so this uh, conference started a few years ago, NIME or NIM, depending on where you're from, uh, New Interfaces for Musical Expression. There's now a n New Interfaces for Musical Expression course in the ITP at uh, Tisch Art School in, in uh, NYU. There's a summer course at Stanford Computer Music in Build Your Own Weird Controller. Um, and these are f popping up all over the place. So there's a, there's a whole new world now of people making physical widgies. Um, some people are making boards that other people can use. I think Doug's got, Douglas Petto's got a little thing working where you can buy these things and build your own stuff. Um, so the way that these two relate in my mind is that much of my thought about doing this kind of work has had to do with how to make things <coughs> more understandable. So that's the port it to a common language and give it away idea. Um, but in a way more permanent in the sense that, um, um, well, again, port it to a common language that's as, as current as you think it's going to be. So at least you know, in 10 years, maybe I won't have to port it again, is, the, is I hope. And, uh, but your stuff's in Lisp, so uh, <laughs> he, he wouldn't even say the word. Yeah, he just says, I use this old language. <laughs> but, um, and it's the same in working with students. Again, back to this teaching idea is that, is that we're on cycles where bodies come in the door, um, very smart. They transform us while they're there for five years, and then they leave, uh, hopefully a little smarter, uh, probably having nothing to do with us, but more having to do with their, them the way they came in. And um, their work's lost, too, if we don't sort of take some care. And so uh, one of the things I've tried to actively do is try to keep overlaps between undergrads and grads and keep it's, it's just the bit rot idea. If somebody writes a program and it sits on a computer in your lab and you go back a year <coughs> later, you can't find it, it won't compile and it won't run anymore. And that might have been a really valuable hunk of information. And so um, none of this has any point except for the fact that I think it is about this, uh, try, yeah, trying to keep some of these artifacts around uh, in some form so that we can remember what they were for and uh, not that they're that important. I mean, any, any one of our individual little hacks is, you know, is not at all important. But you, know, you aggregate a big body of, of, of stuff that's interesting. And um, people use what they like and throw away the rest. But you want to go back someday and, and, and reuse something. And um, <coughs> so we're forced to port. And basically, I've changed OSs every five years uh, for the last uh, 20, I think on average, and um, I guess I will do it again after we put Apple back out of business or something. <laughs> but, uh, so anyway, there's just some random topics, and we can riff on those. Or um, so, um, Great. Um, I think out of these great ideas, I think kind of emerges two 
classes of, of thoughts, perhaps, but even though there are, there are many, many things in here, um, one seems to be kind of this question of, of, of balance and juggling things. Um, and it sounds like I mean, it's, it's not just, you know, it's not just about retooling, but also just software and composition, music in general. Is, you know, how do you maybe balance, you know, hacking with composing? And how do you balance, you know, how deep you might want to go into a, a tool and maybe rewrite it or rehack re it? Um, seems like that's that's one thing we could we could really go further into. And um, and the other question is kind of this. This, this idea that um, of, of software, of, of, I guess, software reuse of software kind of as a culture and maybe software in the classroom. Um, and, you know, this relates to what Miller had said in the beginning about out-of-control software and what <coughs> Perry said at the end about porting. So um, I guess we could start with one of you guys and maybe get your thoughts on one of the two, either balance or the other one. Um, and we can also open up uh, for questions. So um, anybody would like to? <laughs> About Larry. <laughs> uh, uh, there are so many questions there and so um, but also, I mean, I'm sort of reeling because it's so important. I mean, it's so important in my just daily life, in my hourly life. You know, when I leave this panel, I'm going to have to make some choices. Do I hack for a while? Do I kind of, like, answer a question to somebody? You know, there's all these incredibly, every day is like this kind of hour by hour thing. What are you going to do? Um, but I, I do want to say something about this. You said something that I, I feel like I can respond to, simply. Uh, which is this notion of composition and software, hacking and software, which I think Brad and I both have a very similar kind of lifetime experience with. It's how deep do you get and, and how, how do you balance your time? I mean, I could, somebody asked me for a flute piece, I could, you know, crank one out in 20 minutes and I felt like it, but I'm not going to be happy with that. And so my answer, I guess, <laughs> is, to me, hacking and composing are the same thing. They've been the same thing since 1972 or something. You know, I, that's how I compose. And like Perry, I hack for the sake of hacking, and pieces fall out or kind of emerge, or sometimes I don't even know how that happens. But uh, there is no limit to the depth that I feel like I should go to as there isn't with, you know, playing guitar or something like that. I mean, I, I got to go as deep as I possibly can. And that's n not very deep at all when you think of <coughs> what, where you could go. But it's got to be a kind of a full-time commitment to no information is unimportant. Um, but there's a very strange difference. Now, that changes over time. I mean, when I, I don't want to do the old guy thing, but I will. Uh, when I f was first, you know, computer, uh, writing code, it was like assembly language, and I sometimes knew the chip, you know, I and mean, I would, or if there was, a chip, and I, I watched things getting burned. And, I, <laughs> and then I uh, was talking to a student a few minutes ago who said very, very neatly, you know, I'm working in this high-level language, but I really want to understand the guts of it. But 
it's such an incredibly different level. Now, the guts of things, you know, the guts of things in the old days were you knew the chipset and you knew the microcode instructions and blah, blah, blah. Now, you'll never know those guts. And I'm not sure we ever could or would or would need to. Maybe. I mean, maybe you should. And if certainly if a student says, well, you know, I, I don't, I'm not comfortable with OS X. I want to know how OS X is working and I want to hack it. The only possible answer is, yeah, you do it. You know, there, there's no, it, it's only going to produce good things. There's only going to be cool things that happen from that kind of knowledge. Uh, I don't know that they'll last, I don't know what will happen, but I know that the world, as Miller says, the world will gain from that kind of inquisitiveness and that kind of just not settling for what your teachers are telling you and what people are saying, it's enough, and don't do that or you'll never, like, write a piece and you'll never win this, whatever. You know, yeah, do it. Hack OS X. Hack, you know, uh, and that seems like a very, the only answer, and it's an unattainable goal. I mean, I'm never going to get to the place I want to be, but um, I don't think I want to stop trying because my, I know my pieces suffer when I get lazy and my mind suffers and my ideas suffer. The lazier I get, in that regard. Um, actually, I, when I think about it, you, you pointed out those two things in, of uh, kind of you know, hacking the code and you know, creating the artifact. And that's where it suddenly occurred to me there's maybe a, a split on the panel um, where maybe Larry and I are different in that respect from Miller and Perry. And it has to do with the software artifact that's produced. Um, I'll go in and, and hack some code because, you know, maybe maybe one of Perry's physical models doesn't do a pitch bend like I like, you know, which generally is the case. <laughs> pitch bends suck. <laughs> but I'll go in and, and I'll, I'll hack that code, you know, and, and do that. The difference is that Perry put it out there for public consumption. You know, Miller has created very elegant languages with a really nice interface that other people can pick up and use. And that's where my own laziness kicks in because, you know, for me to take that pitch bend and then make it, you know, an object that other people could use, um, then it, it doesn't uh, – the few times I've tried that, it's been miserable failures. I just, I'm just not that kind of person, you know. And it, I guess it has to do more with that, I guess, selfishness, you know, focusing on that particular engagement at that particular time for that particular result, you know. And maybe that's – that's it. My hat's off to you guys for, you know, really being able to get stuff out there and let it be out of control for other people to use of it. There's a further split between Miller and I, I think, um, in that nobody ever reads the documentation for SDK, but what, because who would? But um, the original thing, actually, the reason for it was, was for it to be a, a, a paper. It's a document about how those algorithms work. It's not a system for people to compose on. And so... What I was trying to do was to get people to quit sending me emails saying, I got your paper from ICMC <coughs> 90, and I coded up your flute model, and when I put a square wave in it, it doesn't sound like a flute. And I would send back and say, well, we don't put square waves into flutes. We blow into them. And they would come back and say, oh, when I blow into it, 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 uh, it doesn't oscillate. And I said, well, when you blow into a real flute, it doesn't oscillate unless you do it right. And so I would end up sending them a little piece of code that ran. And I would say, here's, you know, a proof that this algorithm works. You figure out the rest. And so the reason for STK was to do that with every algorithm that I had any understanding of and had done some serious work on. And um, so then I started getting emails saying, 
you don't have a score language and I can't compose with this. And so I said, well, that's not the point. And so, <laughs> so it's a different kind of public consumption. And um, one of the interesting things that's happened at this very same period that Miller talked about, where we've gone, you know, really in the last few years to where information is um, expected to be free, almost. People are, you know, we're back in this state where, you know, almost everyone expects to, you know, find out how something works. Um, this form of documentation, this form of, rather than writing a technical paper, but um, embedding it in, in working code, so it's existence proof, it's a machine that implements it, it's everything, <clears throat> Um, has ceased to become protected speech anymore. As a matter of fact, it's become illegal. So if I publish an algorithm for decrypting uh, DVDs, I'm, I can be arrested and prosecuted for that. And so it's been a very strange time where that kind of speech has actually become more restricted for the kind of work we do, quite a bit of it. Uh, if Brad came up with a cool little mandolin player that... Um, that uh, you know, it could be viewed as a form of data compression. He could cause that to be to become secret in a way that would never been never been possible five years ago. And so it's a it's a very it's a very strange time because things have gotten more open, but they've got sort of scarier in a way. But anyway, not that paranoid. But that, uh, that's why you have to publish all your code as haiku now. Yes, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I. This conversation set me thinking: What on earth possessed me to write a thing like Max? Did I have the same? <laughs> did I have the same goal in mind or not? And I think the answer is yes. That I was hoping to embed in it a certain practice about how to make real-time uh, electronic music uh, with a computer that I thought was hard to do and hard to talk about. And and um, and yes, I'm, I think that one of my main purposes one of my main purposes was there was a music production scheduled and I, a concert scheduled and I had to you know solve some problems real fast but another was uh, was indeed thinking about yeah I have some ideas about how how a, and, and some borrowed ideas actually about how a computer could respond as a musical instrument and the only way to really make it possible for the only possible way that I could express those ideas in a way that people could use or even understand was to was to make it, put it into a program, a software program. And that was long before it was possible to write software for free. Uh, that wasn't an understood model. So uh, so that had actually nothing to do with any issues of copyright or anything like that, but everything to do with the idea of the writing of software as a way of expressing an idea as opposed to a way of simply solving today's problem. Yeah, exactly the same. <laughs> Great. Um, before we open up the floor for, for some questions, um, <coughs> I would like to perhaps suggest that given the, the name and the nature of, of our panel today, Ancient Geeks, I guess the ancient comes from um, not so much their age. You guys don't look quite as old as Max Matthews. Um, but um, it's more with their experience and with just with dealing with all of this, all of this stuff, both you know within the code and outside the code and the issues as the changing dynamics of what it means to to write and publish and work with with software. Um, so I think it's okay to maybe even gain, you know, as Larry said, you know, kind of come from an old timer perspective and kind of maybe contrast that. Feel free to contrast that maybe with with things that are changing today, as as you know what Perry's saying is about the changing dynamics of perhaps anything dealing with what we're talking about. 
And with that, maybe I will take uh, some thoughts and questions maybe for our panelists or just issues in general from from you guys. Anyone? We floored him. <laughs> Eric. Everything that people were talking about in terms of distributing code, getting it out there, um, had to do with communicating um, to other other musicians, other uh, creative artists. Uh, one one advantage of having uh, done this over a long period of time that I think maybe you could share with us is um, what what have been the most successful aspects of your being able to communicate your ideas such that uh, they could very efficiently be used by somebody else or taken in a direction that uh, you never would have expected but uh, we're very happy about? That's a very good question. Um, anyone would like to start on that? Let's start with Miller. I think it's the only one success. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't answer because I'm a failure. <laughs> <laughs> um, <coughs> well, if I can say anything more than what you've probably already put into the question, which is that, uh, yeah, the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, I think it's, I think it's, oh gosh, I don't know if, I, I'm not sure if this is the same topic, but this is, this is either a detail about that or else it's a different topic. I'm not sure, so I'll apologize for a second uh, in advance. But um, so. One, added, one possible attitude about writing software is to try to make it musically neutral, in the sense that, um, uh, in the sense that you're not putting over a bunch of your own baggage um, when you write it. You're only sort of building into it capabilities or, or ideas about what you think could be done. I'm not sure where that line is drawn, and um, and I'm sure that that uh, nothing that anyone's ever done has ever succeeded in being culturally neutral or or musically neutral, to, to use a slightly more circumvented way of saying it. Um, but then how that ties to your question is the, the cool thing about how people have used Macs is <coughs> that they've gone out and, and, uh, and done it in, in aesthetics that had nothing whatever to do with the intentions of, the, of whoever funded EarCom <laughs> to then hire me to, to write this thing. Um, you, can, you can tell actually right off that 0.1% of what's getting done with Max now is something that Pierre Boulez would be playing on his record player if he's got one. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's cool. That's, um, <laughs> that's, that's the good thing, or one of the good things you get when you, when you write software is, is that indeed pe people can bend it to purposes that are very different and, and go completely beyond what you could have imagined when you were, when you were doing it. I think one of the most successful things, I hope, I think so, I have a few specific examples um, of this model of making things understandable through code, making them available, has been um, the way the students use it. Uh, again, I'm back to teaching. but uh, and, and many of them here at, at Princeton, since I've been here, have adopted the same model of, you know, the, the minute you figure it out, really, you publish it as code and you give it away and people download it and you begin a discussion on it and things like that. And again, that's something that you know we wouldn't have done a long time ago. Um, 
for various reasons, but uh, there's quite a few examples recently of you know student projects at the graduate level and the undergraduate level where um, these you know these these people get famous really quick in in a you know little community because they've 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 published this thing, and so that to me is a success of this way of thinking, not necessarily my code at all. You haven't talked about looting. <laughs> Brad wrote these series of little cool programs that, that were, it's the only thing you've actually distributed broadly to the world, right, as a... Can't buy them. Can't buy them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it's the idea of getting a piece of music out there in some alternative form. Um, but I was I was thinking about something else. Okay. Um, Pitch bands, right? No. Okay. Actually, Gail, you, you opened the door for this. I want to challenge the audience with something and uh, see what you all think of this. Um, this is a very different idea, but it, I think it impacts this whole notion of, you know, software, getting it out there, code and whatnot. I want to describe to you something that one of our students did uh, about a year or so ago. A guy named Michael Prerau had this insane kind of Ponzi scheme where... He wrote a GA that would basically, do you know what this is, Eric? I see you kind of, do you know Michael? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> he wrote this, he wrote this GA that was going to analyze kind of pop music melodies. Like, you know, look at the corpus of Madonna and, you know, kind of digest the whole thing. And then spew out, like, a whole slew of variants of these melodies. You know, like, like tens of thousands of these little melodies. Then he was going to copyright all of them <laughs> and sell futures in like certain selected portions of this corpus so that, you know, if Madonna then recorded your melody a year hence, you know, you could score big because you could then sue because you own the copyright for it. Um, I don't know. What, what do you all think of that? I mean, this, this is, you know, the idea of getting stuff out there and what, what Perry was describing is how the, the, the world has now changed in this weird way, you know. I mean, it's... Uh, I would say I'm very interested in that, but but <laughs> my entire life has been a subver I mean, just by doing what it is we do, it's already. I mean, that's a kind of an active assault on the pop culture. But you know, just doing what it is we do every day is is considered sort of subversive. Nobody knows what the hell we're doing, and, and it's it's viewed often with a certain kind of hostility. But that's a I know that project, and it's a cool project. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, subversion. I, I think it's, I, I'd turn it around a little bit, yeah, and say, you know, what, what would happen if, say, Miller wrote some incredible piece of code, put it out there, come to find out Microsoft had already patented it, you know. I, this is a very real scenario, too. Yeah. You know, and that kind of anti-subversion, I think, is, is kind of frightening to me. I think we'll go with Curtis and then Chris. Just to... A question, Perry was talking about teaching. Very often when you go to a new job, now you, perhaps historically, but now you're asked to sign an intellectual property agreement that covers your code, but depending on how you read it, it could even cover your compositions if you're writing algorithmic compositions and things like that. How do you deal with this sort of conflict of interest and your stance versus 
these problems? Yeah, well, I guess that's the, the looching thing, the idea that a composition is sort of embedded in the code that realizes the composition. Uh, my response is that that I don't feel I'm paid for my music, um, and part of my public service as a university professor is to put things out there like that. Um, so I guess it's not a conflict for me because I'm not trying to make money. If there was money to be made, um, then the university would probably try to get its fingers into it. But, I mean, bear in mind that, you know, I'm at a university with a very active medical center where the licensing royalties on a single patent alone was in excess of $90 million. You know, I'm just not going to be there. Um, but I don't know how I feel about it, that's, that's a good question. I mean, and again, I, I have the same ambivalence about, you know, how the tool works. You know, I, I do realize that the way our culture is set up right now, um, that, you know, people have to make a living, you know, and artists that, that don't happen to have the right combination of weird luck things happening where they get a job at a university, you know, they, they have a very real and pressing need to be able to eat food and stuff. I think <laughs> it, Miller, was, Miller was talking about, was it Miller or Larry, was talking about the idea of a community and how they support um, composers. That's the kind of thing, that actually, that's the subversion that I'd like to promulgate on the world, is to change the way that, that we sort of do our business as a culture, you know, and the idea of what it means to support creativity or support artists or support, you know, a lot of different kind of human endeavors. I'd like <laughs> to see that radically changed. Um, and that, that probably is what informs my teaching more than anything in these courses, you know, trying to get at the process, you know. Uh, I have no idea where I'm going with this, so I'm going to stop. <laughs> oh, hooray. Um, Larry said something um, that that I want to both agree and disagree with. Um, and I think I agree because the bar set too low. Well, what did he say? Um, he was talking about um, how deep should one go into a system if a student or, or even a friend, if you're talking amongst colleagues about how deep should I get into a system, how deep sh should you go. I think the bar set really low in society. There's this real anti literacy movement that should formalize itself and start organizations and memberships, I think, so that we'll, we clearly know the allegiances of people in it. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's gone on for much of my life. I've noticed people say, um, yeah, I don't want to learn too much about computers because that would shatter who I am and destroy my life. Um, <laughs> And I get that feeling when I'm coding um, PowerPC Altavec uh, hand-assembled um, routines to accelerate some of my software. Um, I spent some time doing that, and all I could think of while doing it is, I got to get out. I got to get out. Get me out of this place. I don't want to stay here. Um, um, so, yeah, I think that there's some kind of balance there, but I do want to be a little critical of the, the knee-jerk kind of anti-literacy that really exists uh, with respect to computing, um, simply because, yeah, I had to learn English, um, and it, it, it had great, great gains in my life. It gave me, I, I can talk about it. <laughs> um, and it was very helpful. And so I, I really thought 
as a child, I was just being pushed in all these directions to learn given these um, challenges, which perhaps were difficult, perhaps were not, but the challenges were there. And suddenly when I entered the university, the challenges disappeared. People were talking about how we shouldn't learn these things. Um, we need to create boundaries. We need to segregate, segregate ourselves. And, of course, everyone isn't a computer programmer and should not be one, but if one's interested in using tools, and because of the nature of tools imposing form on um, your aesthetic work, because of their structure, um, yeah, it really behooves you to understand and get inside them to some level. But, of course, there is that balance, the get-me-out-of-here balance of you don't want to get lost in the, in the technical land. Let me. I, 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 as you know, as you know, Chris, I completely agree with you about most things. But the, maybe I'll take a. What I was trying to say when I first started it, this thing about balance, it's just something that the older I get, the more I try. I've sort of figured this out that there's going to be infinitely many paths with infinite uh, lengths, right? And and I think you should go infinitely far down as many of them as, as you need to. But at a certain point, you need to know, I'm not going down that one because, you know, I, I don't have time. I mean, there's, I think Tay Hong used to joke, I don't know if he's here, I'll embarrass him, but he used, when I was his thesis advisor, his joke was, Larry doesn't care about GUIs. You know, and I don't. I mean, I'd be perfectly, because I, the, the reason I code and the reason I make things like SoundAC and HMSL is, I care about the ideas in them, and um, I'm trying to document those ideas through an instantiation of those ideas. And the answer to the other question is Eric's question. I, the greatest thing is when somebody re-implements something, something else, and I, that means I've made it clear enough and it was a good idea. So for me, and this is arbitrary and I don't recommend it, I don't care about GUIs. I put up the stupidest, ugliest one I can to just get the idea working. And that saved me a lot of time because <laughs> I don't have to uh, learn a certain class of things. And I, that's just an arbitrary instance. But I do care about certain things, and I'm going to go, like you say, and I think with you, you have to go infinitely far down the path that you need to go, and everybody in this room needs to do that. But you don't need to go down all of them is what. So maybe maybe follow up on, on this question of depth before we get to Paul. Um, it's just really quickly, maybe just, I mean, so it has the boundary of, you know, obviously we aren't at the same, we don't always still need to go to the same depth as we, depth as we did maybe like 10, 15 years ago, right? I mean, you don't want to still want to call Altvec, uh, whatever, you know, hand-rolled assembly. And, you know, ha has that, how has that shifted? Where's that boundary going? I mean, machines and everything is changing. <coughs> I just talked so I'll Maybe we'll leave that as a thought, and we can go ahead. <laughs> That's a good Paul. question. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, there are two things that uh, have occupied much too, way too much of my life. One is porting, and I just want to mention that, you know, having put four computer companies out of business, uh, I'm not interested in doing that ever again. But the more substantial one is the whole issue of neutrality. Um, I spent a long time in search of perfect neutrality and the reason you know in the early days I abandoned music 360 was because it was anything but neutral 
So we worked up C-mix, and I spent a long time thinking that was neutral. And then at a certain point, I looked at myself in the mirror, and I saw this perfectly recursive image that uh, said to said to that told me that in fact I was self-defining my neutrality as my artistic interest, and so I, I moved on to something else besides C-mix. Uh, and I'm sort of evolving to a, a frame of mind in which I think maybe neutrality is not the holy grail, and that in fact um, um, the more the more I see uh, software written by people who really know what they're doing, unlike uh, the original author of CMix, um, it, it strikes me that <clears throat> that um, you you perhaps do want to uh, to look at software that has some sort of tendency to imply a way to think about music and uh, the reason I prefer, well one of the things I find so interesting about Super Collider is that in fact it does sort of lead me in directions that I wouldn't have gone if I had stayed using, stayed uh, working with CMix and I suppose the same thing is true of any language so um, I, I sort of at, at times was tempted to go back and Revive Larry's program, but it's called HTML, HMSL. HTML, I wrote HTML. <laughs> yeah. If I'd only patented so, it, I would have. So been. yeah, everyone, everyone I know who worked with it, you know, said that it sort of opened up new ways of thinking about things. So, um, yeah, as I say, I, I, is is neutrality really the holy grail? I certainly had uh, developed a deep allergy. Uh, in the early days to a lot of software because of the the extent to which it implied ways of thinking about music, but they were essentially not intelligent ways of thinking about music. On the other hand, the uh, programs like uh, Max MSP and Super Collider and these things, uh, there, are some, there are some sort of deeply intelligent ways of thinking about music that are not my own, but nevertheless, which I find interesting. Yeah, yeah that's... Come join us. You know? I mean, I, I, I maintain there is no such thing as, as neutral software. You know, the, I remember this ad in like Keyboard Magazine back ten years ago with the you know the MIDI cable plugged into the brain. You know, I mean, come on, that's just ridiculous. You know, <laughs> these tools have a profound shape and shaping effect on your music. Um, I think the challenge, and this will get back to the original teaching idea, is to somehow get people to recognize what the implications of a particular software package is, you know, so that as you encounter it, you don't just begin to do what the software enables, you know. I mean, it's like, you know, if you write for a string quartet, that's not a neutral thing. You know, it's, it's a definite sort of shaping structural profound aspect of the music that you write but you know that going into it you know you know what this thing is and i think that's the challenge is to get people to realize what what this code is and how this code is going to affect your musical thought we tried a we tried a thing last year at columbia where i taught five languages in a year and it was kind of fun because i got to encounter a lot of these languages and stretched me in bizarre ways but it was just a total disaster um, and i think the disaster was because the languages are now so different from each other you know to move from CMix to C Sound uh, to JSON to Super Collider, um, you know, in the space of you know five weeks each, um, there's just no way. Uh, you have to have a very deep engagement with some of these things to really get them to to bring themselves out. But be aware of what you're doing when you do it. So. Well, shut things down. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think. I agree. I think there's no such thing as neutrality, and um, and yet maybe paradoxically, it's the search for that 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 leads a software designer to 
open interesting doors for people that want to use the software. Um, so I think uh, well, I can't <coughs> there've got to be other examples of this things where you try to do something which is simply not ever going to happen, but it's the trying to do it that actually is the sort of thing that you do or or causes the thing to really happen. Maybe I suggest that the word neutrality is a shibboleth. I mean, it, it's not really what. I mean, I, I know the way you were using it, and I, we used to say that with HMSL too, but it wasn't really what we meant. It, what we meant was non-inhibitory. Uh, that is, like you say about your use of super collider, Paul. I mean, that when I heard that you were using super collider, that really stopped me for a minute, and I really gave it a lot of thought, uh, and I realized that. That's not going to happen with a language that doesn't, with someone like you, where the language would preclude the most outrageous kinds of reconstructions of thought, and yet it's also important that someone like you get something from the language. Um, and and that seems to me what we're all about. All I mean, all of us, not just people up here, is developing ideas which will engender other new ideas, not close themselves in and and, f and also homogenize the aesthetic environment. So something like HMSL was, you know, we, we often used to say it was stylistically independent. And that, that was a notion that, and then that got to be like a really bizarre statement. So we thought about it. You know, the, the only idea after a while was that nothing, no idea was too outrageous to support. So if a composer says, this is what I want to do, and you go like, you want to do what? And, and then it was completely our responsibility to make that not easy, uh, nothing was easy, but to uh, make it possible and, and that a language should support the growth of itself, just like English does or something like that. Curtis? Just a random thought on that. In our school, we have a close relationship with, with architecture and sonics and architecture. And the way that they talk about building s spaces to accommodate different kinds of exchanges, do you think that that's a, a legitimate or valuable model in terms of thinking about these things rather than languages and specificity and things? But do you think that these new platforms are really designing social spaces for different kinds of exchange? You know, we design a building that might have a uh, sort of privileged certain kinds of musical activities, like there's a room that's wired for electronic performance and a room for the jazz band or something, but still it facilitates a certain kind of exchange. Do you think at all about that when con constructing sort of large commercial packages like Miller? Or Actually, I, I'm going to comment on that because I was going to say something about that, but I just thought it was too weird. Um, thanks, Curtis. <laughs> um, it, because I, I subscribed all these mailing lists for all these different languages, and it is it is really um, enlightening to me to see how the communities differ in given languages. You know, the JSON community is much different than the Super Collider community. This is just on the sort of weird textual mailing list basis, you know. And I haven't really sat and figured out why that is or what it is about these communities that attracts particular individuals. But there's definitely something to the idea. I mean, when I say like a Max MS peer, you know, you probably know who I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so I, I think there's a real strong aspect of that 
you know, the enabling social spaces sort of thing to this. It's something I'm not sure this is where it gets out of control because I don't think it's anything you can particularly control at all. But I'm not sure what the relationship is, but it's there. Chris? Stop talking. Thing. Um, yeah, inhibition is an interesting um, model, too. Instead of thinking of neutrali neutrality, you have this idea of um, removing inhibition in, in software. And of course, um, that has many of the same problems. But um, there's some interesting developments. I'll focus on Maximus P for, for a moment. I'll be both positive and negative. Um, there's some neat developments in that environment that could be done in other. Um, environments as well, like the C sound object, for example, um, where you have this integration of different ways of working into um, this one system. Um, I'd be really impressed if the reverse could be done. Um, that'd be uh, very interesting uh, as well. Um, not that I'd want to use it, but it would. A Maximus P opcode in C sound? Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and the reason that I, it's funny, um, and, and that's because of the nature of Max. And, and I think that's, something that one should consider, um, that Max is this um, very visual um, vector-based language, and it would be very hard to encapsulate it into another environment, whereas other environments would be easy to encapsulate inside it. What I'd really like is to double-click on an object in Max um, or a patcher, and instead of writing in Max, write in Chuck or something. Um, that would be really neat. Um, and also, yeah, because sometimes Max, and I'm sorry, I'm going to say this in front of everyone, um, and some of you have heard this before, um, but for me, the, the vector-based architecture of Max, and SuperCollider for that matter, is like eating rice with a backhoe. Um, you, and sometimes you need chopsticks, and it, it'd be really great uh, for some of these environments. R writing externals, I can do it pretty fast now, but I have to use a really ugly compiler that I hate. Um, and someday that company who makes Max will use the free compiler that comes with the computer. Um, and if I was using PD, I could just use whatever compiler I want, so maybe I should use PD more. Sorry, Miller. <laughs> but um, the point is it'd be really cool for um, these developments for languages to hybridize and open doors and windows into each other. Interesting thoughts. Um, any takers on this one? Yeah, the PD unit generator isn't uh, ready yet. <laughs> uh, one of the issues is if you say PD twice, does that mean the same one or does that mean two different ones? And are they going to share the symbol space? <laughs> um, PD actually, some, someone has got PD working as a VST plugin. And I think if you can do that, you can do the C sound unit generator. But I think there are some details there to think about. But the reason you could do it in PD and you probably couldn't do it in Max is because it makes sense to have PD without a GUI. And it doesn't make sense in Max. But to answer the bigger question, yeah, everything really should be embeddable in everything else. And that way you can get yourself tied in even bigger and more complicated knots. <laughs> Yeah, we had a fun porting experience this year. Ari was porting some very old Next Step code, and we were running Virtual PC on a Mac, running OpenStep on that Virtual <laughs> PC, so we could figure out what the code was doing. It was very evil. 
scary. Yes. <laughs> wrong. Any more um, thoughts on this? On this train of thoughts. And with that, perhaps there's just maybe one more thing that's that's come up repeatedly in in all of our thoughts, and that's kind of the idea of just teaching and software and teaching. And we've talked about aspects of it, but never really gone down a little bit into this into this um, particular subtree. So um, maybe maybe let's hear some of our thoughts on teaching, maybe using software um, in classes or teaching in your general thoughts on, on education and computer music? Anyone? Well, um, let's start with Perry. <laughs> I like to use software in, in teaching. Um, there's an interesting tension <clears throat> in my position here with a joint appointment in computer science and music but with the CS classes essentially open to anyone who's taken the prereqs, which are sort of a basic programming courses, um, and some other courses offered in music where anybody can really take them, as to, again, how deep to go and how deep to expect people to be when they come in and how deep they're going to go. And so I think that's a, a, a common, um, common thing throughout. Um, and... Uh, also, the really interesting, um, there's, there's a fair community of people, uh, matter of fact, all the researchers we know who, who work for companies use MATLAB. Yeah. So there's this huge, you know, this program we no one talks about in our community to speak I of. We do it all oh, the time. Oh, you use yeah, MATLAB, that's yeah. Right. yeah. So um, it's sort of strange. So a lot of people have just gone the direction of teaching in MATLAB, yeah, yeah. and that's just it. That's, that's where you do all your work and stuff like that. And... Um, I refuse to do that because it costs too much money. Yes, yeah, octave. Yeah, yeah. yeah you octave, can use octave yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. But um, <laughs> so that's been sort of interesting because we've got engineering students coming in already really up to speed on MATLAB, um, and just try to figure out how to how to express that idea for this lecture and for the projects yeah. and for all this other stuff. So I don't know how you. Brad just <laughs> teaches all languages at the same time. <laughs> I. It's funny. I have a, I have a very different kind of teaching experience because the students that take like Perry's class are, are really interested in learning what Perry has to teach them. <laughs> That's not the case with me. Um, I, I have a a model that I, I learned from Paul Lansky that I call the device driver class model of teaching, and this is I, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, one of the last years that I was here, um, 20 years ago. Uh, there was a class with me, Dave Madol, I think Lars Graf might have been in it, I'm not sure, where we, we thought, well, we're going to go through a, a Unix device driver and look at Robert Gross's code and sort of figure out how it works. And it was just like a disaster of a class, you know. I mean, you know, we... Yeah, yeah, you did. Well, you'd stand up there and go, uh, I'm not sure what this does, but um, <laughs> you'll figure it out. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, we, we sat there and looked at this, you know, stack of the tractor feed printout, you know, with the alternating green and white sort of nonsense and, you know, tried to figure out what this was. I thought, well, this is something that I hope I never have to use. Lo and behold, the first thing I had to do when I got my job at Columbia was <coughs> a device driver, which Curtis then debugged. And, yeah, that was real fun. Um, but, uh 
anymore. I feel like, you know, the students that come into our classes, a lot of times at Columbia, they have very specific kind of takes on what their music is about. You know, they're, they're grown-up kids, and, you know, they say, well, this is what I want to learn. And I feel my mission is to sort of, you know, really kind of expose them to a lot of ideas and concepts that maybe they haven't encountered. And occasionally it scores, but, it, again, the scoring doesn't happen until after the class. Um, a real good example of that is David Birchfield. You know, he came in, he was a percussionist from Cincinnati, you know, doing just kind of random percussion-y things. And I taught the class one year, and one of the lectures was on genetic algorithms and uh, neural nets. And, you know, the class, it's, it's really horrible because you're teaching to these people who are just going, uh, this is really dull. <laughs> and, you know, lo and behold, a year later, David Birchfield is now like one of the GA experts in the world as far as I'm concerned. His dissertation was on this huge GA that, you know, did this incredible kind of compositional sort of stuff. And that's, that's the payoff for me, um, is the approach to teaching is to expose people to a lot of these different kinds of things and then let them, again, realize what the implications of the software are for their own music. And hopefully they can also turn the spotlight on software they might be using for themselves at that point, like open music or something like that, and say, well, there's a lot more to the world than this, and begin to imagine what that world might be or those worlds. My, um, yeah, I've been in a privileged position. I have students like Brad Garten and Chris Penrose, and so you don't you don't actually teach these people how to do anything. You just sort of set them loose, and you know they figure it out by themselves. And that's sort of been my motto. You ruined years. my life, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, yeah, I just they ask me a question, and I say, I don't know. You figure it out. <laughs> so, uh, but that that model sort of has perpetrated itself over the years, and um, my latest justification for for not do, not teaching is that um, you know there's all this great software out there and it's pretty pretty simple to learn I mean you know if you get in a jam maybe we'll help you out uh, we'll sit down with you but the whole question of actually learning programming or learning to write software uh, for musicians I, I'm, I'm sort of ambivalent at a certain point maybe about 10 years ago I thought you know everyone should know C and everyone should uh, really sort of study programming I've never taken a programming course and it shows but nevertheless you can you can get people can do a, a lot of stuff now without having to go very far and they can do a lot of stuff with, you know, sitting at home with a programming manual. So we've had some students who have gone over to the CS and take, what is it, 217 or something like that. Um, and they do pretty well. Um, you know, they, they, they come out ahead. But uh, in general, I, I, don't, I don't really know what, uh, what role I should play at this point in terms of teaching software. I mean, Dan uh, sort of has mastered Max MSP and can help anybody with any questions. And nobody around except me and Newton use Super Collider, so no, I don't. Ha I don't get any questions. So. <laughs> Taehong works in MATLAB. Taehong does everything in MATLAB. Yeah, that's really scary. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, to me, graduate students, their main role is to debug my MATLAB and Java code, yeah, yeah. and I shout upstairs when I hit a MATLAB problem, and somebody runs down and yeah. fixes it. I mean, I, I expect my graduate students to be smarter programmers than me, but with the undergraduates, um, it's been a very interesting, uh, about 10 years ago, I, re I realized studios are not the issue. I mean, everybody at Dartmouth had a Mac. They had to have them as part of their tuition, which is a very privileged sort of thing. Then I said, oh, well, you could teach like 60 people computer music. You just have to find the right kind of combination of public domain and 
or virtually public domain tools. And I just started teaching that way for, I've been doing it for a very long time. And the tools change. So I teach Super Collider or CSAN, depending on, and I, I end up teaching a lot of things that I don't really use. I, I've done zero pieces in CSAN and zero pieces in Super Collider, but I know them pretty well because I, up to about a first year of teaching, because they've been wonderful tools to teach with. And I, I think that's, not, and I, I've changed it recently now to gone into a lot of popular software. They love Fruity Loops and things like that. But uh, always the emphasis seems to me on getting them as sort of hip as possible with relationship to the software, as exploratory as possible. And you can do that in Super Collider. You, these kids can start writing objects or not, depending on what they want to do. And that, that has seemed like a huge kind of revolution. Is it like you're not tied to a place or a machine or maintaining anything? You just use the coolest thing that's available to a lot of people at a given time and learn it well enough to teach it. Well, most of my teaching is at the undergraduate level right now. Um, we're in a student uh, in a school with 30,000 students of whom maybe a hundred major in music as we know it, and the rest are all studying biology, engineering, whatnot. Um, and they, so they don't mind uh, having to deal with things like theory and so on. And of course, they all want to learn how to use whatever it is, acid or whatnot. And um, it's a struggle to try to uh, keep them from just entertaining themselves with loops and, and to uh, and to actually go in and, and do things for themselves. But um, yeah, so my answer to this isn't going to isn't going to solve anyone's problem, obviously. But um, I've gotten to this very dinosaurish mode of teaching where I really do try to concentrate on ve on very fundamental aesthetic issues, like what um, what's the role of the of the person who perceives the work of art you're working on. And what's your role? And where's, where does the performance take place? And, and what does it consist of? And also, um, the other side of theory, which is um, write out the equation for two sinusoids that differ by one hertz and uh, prove to me that they'll beat uh, once every second. That kind of thing. Um, <coughs> musical acoustics, you know that one. <laughs> Chris went to UCSD as an undergrad. Um, so, uh, and as to software, I just try to stay away from it as far as I possibly can. Um, although uh, I'll, I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll mess with Octave a little bit with the graduate students. Uh, the undergrads, I try never to use anything except um, PD and Audacity, and they rebel. Um, and I don't mind if they rebel as long as they'll do something cool. Most of them aren't smart enough to figure out which software they need to to accomplish what with, and so they'll download something and then they'll find out what it does, and that'll be what they're doing. And I want them to be in control of it. And I also don't want them to be coming in and, and using um, a studio that I've set up for them. I want them to make their own studios because they have to know how to do that anyway. And a textbook costs 100 bucks, and a computer at Walmart is 200 So, um, So use an online textbook and just buy a computer. Um, even even for my demographic of 100 students I'm teaching this fall, 99 had computers. And the other one, her computer was stolen, so she's just <laughs> borrowing one from the TA. Um, so uh, yeah, so they, they need to be able to download and, and run software, because that's what their modality is going to be when they graduate. Um, and and also, everything that that you teach them has to be organized about the principle of how are they going to continue gathering information and 
and making stru mental structures for themselves after, <coughs> after they leave at, at the end of four short years, or sometimes six short years being a state university. And um, yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to figure out how to do, and I don't pretend to know how to do it really, except that I know a lot of things that I stay away from. <laughs> okay, so um, again, we'll open up the floor, but not on just this topic of education, but maybe as you're, maybe about thoughts of anything we've talked about today, and. and Okay. Um, any, so, so I think we're getting closer to to the to wrapping up our, our panel discussion. Are, are there any additional thoughts from our panelists on anything we've talked about in some in, in conclusion or in summary or anybody from the audience? Just be a good time. Let's let's go in reverse order. It's maybe twenty seconds <laughs> or whatever you like from Harriet Miller of. Any conclusion, concluding thoughts? You don't, you don't have to have any. If you don't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Bonnie, yes. It's, it's being broadcast. I don't know. This is just something that I was, I've been thinking about, and I'm just kind of wrestling with and teaching. Back to teaching. Um, a student of mine a couple of weeks ago, who's incredibly thoughtful, wonderful student, who is deeply attracted to sound and has a very earnest, honest desire to get inside it. Um, was very troubled after a class of mine, and it was a class that hadn't gone particularly well. It was a frustrating class where I was trying to just get out concepts of um, analog synthesis, uh, you know, talking about voltage control synthesis because we're trying to do history and we're also trying to do current technology. And it was a frustrating class. And to get through a lot of ideas quickly, I'd put this PowerPoint presentation up there and we're just kind of whipping through things. Um, and she came to talk to me and she was very upset and she said, I just feel like there's no time to talk about the beauty. There's no when are we going to get to the beauty? And um, I, I felt awful um, about it because, I, to me, um, it was the you know the beauty was was an obvious thing. I, it didn't seem like something I had to really address. Um, but I really it kind of made me think about you know the fact you know that we, we're. It, it takes so much time to talk about technology. It takes so much time to introduce tools, to talk about the bugs, to um, dispel illusions, to put them on the right track, to convince them not to use acid and fruity loops or whatnot. And to, to, you know, and then where is their time for the beauty um, to talk about that and to bring that into the discussion? And I think it affected me. This this question affected me the most because. It is something that I care about, and it's it's like something that I care about so deeply, I had completely neglected. So that's um, just a thought. So we'll come back to this this question of of balance. And well, just to echo Miller, one way to do it would be just not to talk about teach fruity loops or just make them do pieces and give them various slight. Uh, constraints on how to do that piece. Let them do their first piece in acid or Fruity Loops, uh, and then talk about the piece, and let them talk, and then say, okay, now here, do your piece in this thingy, and then 
get him into a super collider for, you know, but don't focus, don't make the nuts and bolts of like how to do it really the issue. I mean, talk about sound and music in class and then let them figure out the connection between that. And, and there's no reason to really preclude any piece of software as long as you're saying, make a piece and walk into class and you'll hear 15 pieces. And some of them will be beautiful. And they'll, and focus on what makes each one of them beautiful in some way, and then they'll move that into that. that that's just the way I do it. I, I never I do very, spend very little time showing them how to write C sound. But they do a lot, spend a lot of time talking about their pieces. In the, yeah, yeah, we've moved away from that showing how to do stuff, too, in favor of, you know, trying to throw out these concepts, like, you know, what what is a neural net? It's a class I should probably explain a little better for just general undergraduates. Not, uh, so, so are mine, by the way. I mean, I, I do this with the, no no prerequisites. This brought up an interesting point that uh, we're, we're really succeeding. Uh, these classes would be as big as we would right. let them be. I had 40 in mind last spring, which for Princeton is pretty rare. Brad says there's a waiting list of 100 for his class. And so to let, let them all play their pieces consumes the first half of the semester or something like <laughs> There you that. go. Yeah. So it's uh, <laughs> Easy job. <laughs> yeah. I, all, all questions of beauty that we get, I refer to Douglas Rapetto. You know. <laughs> um, I, I'd say, you know, it's interesting hearing, especially, you know, Miller, um, you know, the, the very divergent uh, ways that we're approaching teaching this stuff. You know, it sort of shows how broad and divergent the field itself is. And given that state of affairs, I think it's up to the individual to really try to figure out what their relationship is going to be to this stuff. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good thing, um, and I hope it doesn't change. It probably will, but, you know. All right. I think this is actually a really appropriate um, note to end um, our great panel discussion on. So at this point, let's, uh, I'd like to thank all our panelists um, for... All over the place, especially uh, Miller from from uh, from San Diego. So, thanks once again to everyone, and uh, enjoy the rest of the festival. Thank you all.